0: Welcome, you're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California.
1: Well, for the past several weeks, as you may know, we have been talking about the theme of a radiant life. This vision of a John seventeen three eternal quality of life right now, a life permeated in the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus, if you will, reigning over the inner territories of our being. An intimate and interactive relationship with Christ that bears the fruit of Christ-like thoughts, feelings, Christ-like physical bodies and how we use them, Christ-like relationships, the fruit of Christ-likeness as we deal with life's difficulties, the fruit of Christ-likeness as we handle conflict, the fruit of Christ-likeness in terms of how we respond when our will is thwarted and we don't get what we want, and how we as a faith community, a congregation, a church, display the goodness and the shalom of God in the midst of a broken and increasingly divided world. A radiant life, I love the phrase, a radiant life individually, the journey that I'm on, the journey that you're on. A radiant life communally, the journey that we are on together as a congregation, marked by humility, marked by increasing joy in the midst of whatever circumstances, marked by lasting peace that produces contentment in whatever circumstances. And all of this being manifested so our neighbors and friends and coworkers see and hear and experience and encounter the irresistible reality of Jesus and his kingdom in us and through us. It's a wonderfully captivating vision. It's worth giving our lives to. And today and throughout this Holy Week, as you know, Christians all over the world will revisit the most important events in God's mission to renovate and restore human beings and all of creation. So today begins what is, quite literally, the most important week in the history of the universe. And the radiance of Jesus' life and example, from which this whole series has begun. The radiance with which Jesus lived. The radiance of his example in the many circumstances of his life. The radiance of Jesus' life and example, rather incredibly includes the radiance with which he faced his difficult final days and walked through them each step of the way, surrendered to his Father's will. Jesus' final week began on what we now call Palm Sunday. The Mount of Olives is located on the eastern edge of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is traveling down this road. He's coming out of the Mount of Olives He's about to move through what's called the Kidron Valley and then up toward the city of Jerusalem. And he's riding on the back of a donkey, which fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, who hundreds of years earlier wrote, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. It's a picture of a king riding into a newly conquered city. We see this in movies. The city gets conquered, here comes the king. Well, this is a picture, sort of a picture, of a king riding into a newly conquered city, except in this unique case, the king rides on a donkey instead of a war horse, and his way of conquering shatters all existing molds. The road is lined with Jesus' followers and fans who are joyfully hollering the messianic words, Of Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a big day for these people. This is the day the king finally enters into the city of Jerusalem and the revolution begins. So there's something in the air as Jesus rides toward this ancient and important city. The Jewish people understood Psalm 118 to be about the Messiah who would eventually rescue them from their enemies, and from their oppressors. So for them to shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, shows that they thought Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and king. It's a big day. And yet, as is always the case, there's more going on on this first Palm Sunday than meets the eye. In fact, we can say Jesus is the only one who is really aware of what is actually going on. Jesus is the only one aware of how today's festive atmosphere will soon become Friday's darkness. Jesus is the only one who really gets it. Even his closest friends who had lived with him for three years and heard him expound on the nature of the kingdom. And heard him talk about and elaborate on the sufferings he would endure once he got to Jerusalem. Even these close friends, they did not really get who Jesus was or what it meant for him to be king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Was shouted against the backdrop of a first century coronavirus known as the Roman Empire. Whose oppression over the people and scare tactics constantly hovered over the lives of the Jewish people. And many who were alongside that road that day, on that first Palm Sunday, many of them shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, believing Jesus was going to overthrow these Romans and liberate the Jews. So we can say they really didn't get it. They didn't get who Jesus was. They didn't get what it meant for him to be king. The zealots, you may have heard of them, They were Jewish reformers who sought to bring about social and political change through violence. So they wanted to fight the Romans and, if you'll permit me, take back the culture. They wanted a king then who led with sword in hand. They didn't get who Jesus was or what it meant for him to be king. And, of course, the Pharisees were out... Alongside the road as well. They were the religious leaders who held sway over the souls of the people. And the Pharisees, as we know, were threatened by Jesus because he not only did not promote their system, he undercut it. So the Pharisees didn't get who Jesus was, they didn't like who Jesus was, and they had no clue of what it meant for him to be king. And in all these cases, and this is kind of the point, in all these cases, people projected what they wanted in a Messiah. Onto Jesus. And he disappointed them every time. He never conformed to their pattern. He had a different vision of God. He had a different vision of God's purposes. He had a different vision of how to bring forth God's purposes. And he had a radically different idea of good news. There's nobody in the life of Jesus that, had, that com- came across him... Or heard of who he was or saw what he did and they got it and thought this is exactly what I was hoping for. He's exactly what I was looking for. Not a single person had that experience. Rather, people projected what they wanted in a Messiah onto Jesus and he disappointed them every time. Now, it's worth a pause here to consider... The radiant life of Jesus. Again, the foundation of what we've been talking about is this life that Jesus lived, the way that he went about dealing with all of the issues of life, the things he taught, the experiences he had, how he was surrendered to the will of his Father. It's worth a pause here to consider the radiant life of Jesus, his compassion for those who were on the margins, his pursuing love for those who were Hall of Fame-level sinners. His graciously long reach to those who were on the outside of the circle to pull them and bring them into the circle. His wisdom and his truth about how life and relationships work best. His brilliant reframing of the prevailing ideas about who God was that were common in the day. And reframing of the prevailing ideas of what God was like and reframing of the prevailing ideas of what God was all about and what made God tick, and the way in which Jesus redid all of that. His unrelenting desire to fulfill his Father's will, to live in obedience, surrendered to his Father's will, even when it cost him his life. Another aspect of his radiance is his rush to forgive those who had hurt him and to forgive those who were burdened by sin. So when we look back now with virtually any measuring rod in hand, whether it be Christian or some other religion or just a morality lens or what is good or some philosophical lens, when we look back now, Jesus astounds. He's impressive. His life radiates goodness, and it hardly matters what part of the... uh, Measuring stick you want to hold, or where you're coming from, most would say he was pretty impressive. He radiated goodness, and yet he was not the Messiah or the King anyone expected or wanted when he came to this earth. The brightest of the bunch in the first century who could recite long chapters, books of scripture from memory, they did not have an accurate read on who the Messiah would be or what he would be like. Jesus arrived in their midst. He showed them signs and wonders and power from heaven. These were people whose minds and hearts were filled with the Old Testament scriptures. They could recite them on command, long sections from Deuteronomy and elsewhere that would just rattle off their tongue. But when Jesus came in their midst and showed them signs and power, and wisdom and wonders, as Jesus puts it in Luke nineteen forty four, they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. Now, I imagine it sort of resonates with most of us that our finite minds cannot perfectly or completely comprehend God's infinite ways. I mean, I think most of us like the sound of that, right? God's ways are bigger than our ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. He is infinite. I am finite. I cannot comprehend all of who he is or all of what he's done. I have some knowledge of what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he did, but certainly as a finite human being, I cannot grasp the totality of that. Most of us seem to like the sound of that. I would suggest most of us probably agree with that. God's God's ways are higher than our ways. We get it. But sometimes it seems to me We don't get it. Sometimes it seems to me we approach God and we approach faith as though we do have it pretty much all sorted out. Our certainty and defensiveness in response to hard questions or fresh ideas, for example, makes it seem as though we think our finite minds do in fact comprehend God's infinite ways me put it this way. It's like we have a file on Jesus. We know who he is. We know what he's like. We get it. Case solved. What's next? Sometimes the way we approach God, sometimes the way we hold our faith, if you will, leaves little room for mystery, wonder, or new frontiers of spiritual formation in Christ's likeness. We've got that figured out might be a simple way Of capturing this. So our Christian experience ends up with certain unchanging measurements. Or put it this way: Jesus ends up fitting into this or that slot, even though we would readily say, Oh, you can't fit Jesus into a slot. So there's a really good question to ask ourselves. And we can ask this anytime. It's good to ask anytime. But maybe it is really good to ask it on the front end of the most important week in the history of the universe. It's a really short question. Who is this Jesus? Now, you hear that question. Who is this Jesus? And we may have a short list of descriptive titles and roles ready to rattle off an answer to the question. Or we may have a neat biblical theology to explain Jesus and package him up. He was this. He did that. Here's the implication. But it seems to me something lacks very often in these replies. In Matthew's recounting of this Palm Sunday service, when Jesus finally arrives, or Palm Sunday scene, when Jesus finally arrives in the city of Jerusalem, here's what Matthew says. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Jesus arrested their attention. And if our finite minds and hearts cannot perfectly comprehend the ways of our infinite God, or say it this way, if we are being authentic when we claim Jesus is bigger than us and his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, might I suggest we never drift too far from this disruptively transformative question who is this? Might I suggest as well, the longer one has been following this Jesus, the more frequently one must ask, who is this Jesus? Might I suggest we often revisit this question, prayerfully trusting that the Spirit of God wants to continually stretch the dimensions of our understanding of who Jesus is, what he set out to do, what he's continuing to do in us and what he's doing in the world today. The Spirit wants to continually expand the boundaries of our experience with this living and ever-present Jesus. Jesus was not the king these people had hoped for or expected. Jesus did not do what the crowd wanted him to do. Jesus was not what these cheering fans thought they wanted. He was exactly what they were hoping for, but not at all like what they were looking for. He didn't fit the mold. And if Saturday of Holy Week was the end of the story, Jesus would have ended his career in the minds of the people with a Yelp rating of one star. Bombed out. Failure. And I'm struck today by the contradictions entwined in this Palm Sunday event. So many of them. People cheering and proclaiming him king and adoring him in worship, but really none of them genuinely understanding who Jesus was and what he was about to do or why he was about to do it. I'm struck by the rebelliousness of religious people who were lined alongside that road, who continued to project an identity onto Jesus, even after he demonstrated he's not what they think he is. I'm struck by the zealots, who want to employ violent means to bring about the society they believe should exist. And they want Jesus to carry the scepter in one hand and the sword in the other and lead them into battle. And I'm struck by all these Palm Sunday contradictions, not as someone who is immune from these distortions, but someone, as someone who is prone to them. I'm struck by these things as one who, at some level, with many stumbles along the way, has sought to live for this king for the past 38 years, but at the same time, so often, While proclaiming allegiance to this king, I want to domesticate this king. I want this king to heal at my left side. I want to keep him under wraps, all the while fooling myself into thinking, well, I already know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I got a file on this. I get this. What's next? See, I'm struck by this Palm Sunday scene, and you may have heard this at the end of the scripture reading. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's 41 through 44 of Luke 19. I'm struck by this Palm Sunday scene because just like Jesus wept, Luke tells us, when he saw the city of Jerusalem, knowing the soul of the city was resistant to his grace. Just like that, I know in my depths For 38 years, at one time or another, Jesus has wept over me, over my stubbornness, over my resistance to his grace. He has wept because I've so often lived from my old self. I've so often insisted, my will be done, even as I've prayed, your will be done. So it seems to me, then, no one who has an authentic relationship with Jesus sits still or just stays in one place. Jesus, as king, it seems to me, means he wants to reign over my inner territories so I manifest his radiance. And that means movement. That means new adventures. That means a life of ongoing surrender. That means going along and following him. And every now and then, something emerges and keeps emerging. And it's the voice of the Spirit saying to me, here's the next horizon. Will you let it go? Will you wave the white flag? Will you surrender? And sometimes the next horizon has to do with something that happened eons ago but has never been surrendered. Julie and I have been married for 30 and one half years. We are two sinful and selfish people who are routinely governed by our false selves and by our old selves. Our old selves, mind you, that though crucified with Christ seem to have 9,000 lives. Just keeps coming back. Julie and I routinely let our ego and selfish wants dictate the terms of our marriage relationship. But even so, our relationship has morphed over the past 30 and a half years. My understanding of Julie and her understanding of me is wildly different than it was on August eighteenth, 1990. The dimensions of our understanding have changed. Since we first got married. So our relationship is living and dynamic. It morphs and changes. And the dimensions of our mutual understanding have expanded. Can you imagine saying to me. So who is Julie? And I say I've got a file on her. Let me flip through it and tell you about her. And the file I have on her. Is the same file I had 30 and a half years ago. There would be a core fundamental, some kind of, ah, how can I help you see you don't get this? So our dimensions of understanding have expanded. Again, this has happened even though she and I are two sinful and selfish people still being redeemed and renovated. So how much more will one's relationship with a perfect king result and morphing and dynamic change and new frontiers of growth and fresh expressions of his grace in the everyday details of our interior of our inner territories and in life, if it happens with two people who are ridiculously selfish and sinful, how could it not happen where at least half of the relationship is perfect? No one who has an authentic relationship with Jesus. Will sit still or stay in one place. The measurements of who is Jesus, who is this King, those measurements taken way back when, when we first encounter Him, are going to expand. They're going to increase. Our eyes will be opened, our ears will be opened. For if we are stagnant, something is dreadfully wrong. The people along the road on the first Palm Sunday hooted and hollered about the kingship of Jesus, but their journey was just beginning. Their answer to the question, who is Jesus, on that first Palm Sunday, would not be the same if asked a month later, or a year later, or a decade beyond. I mean, think about it. Think of Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Who is Jesus? Who do people say I am? Jesus says to him. And Peter, like he likes to do, opens his big mouth. Well, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. But here's the thing. Peter had a twisted idea of what that even meant. Peter did what Peter always did. He was just talking. Just words. But the rest of his life was an exercise in the inner life implications of Jesus actually being his Christ. The son of the living God living in him was the experiment Peter was on for the rest of his days. Think of the Pharisees. They hear this adulation being heaped on Jesus and they start having a panic attack. The people are assigning Jesus the role of Messiah, which shattered the cherished molds of the Pharisees. But more importantly, Jesus as Messiah threatened the Pharisees' power and status because he was nothing like they ever would have imagined. And he was going to take their power and status away. So they shout something different to Jesus. They say, rebuke your disciples because they're blaspheming. And you see what these Pharisees are doing. You can read behind their question. Tell them to stop saying this, they say to Jesus. What they're doing is they are making Jesus fit what they want and what they need. And I'm really guilty of that. The Pharisees want a Messiah who's this, 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 and this, and preserves their kingdom. That's what I want sometimes. Sometimes Jesus is really little more than an exponential version of me. He thinks like me. He values what I value. He cares about the things I care about, and he doesn't care about the things I don't care about. He's like me, but better. He values what I value. But what if we've made Jesus to be something he isn't? We've made him care about something he doesn't really care about. In fact, how often in the Gospels does Jesus ratify what someone thinks or does versus turn it upside down and inside out. Jesus gives a mind-bending response to these Pharisees. I mean, you got to just sit on this for a second. They say, tell them to stop yelling this to you. And Jesus says this, if they stop yelling this to me, see these rocks alongside this road, these rocks will cry out. He's telling these religious experts that inanimate Creation, the rocks, know more about what is actually happening in this moment than they do. The rocks get it, he's saying. And you've got rocks in your head and you don't get it. The rocks know who I am. The rocks know what's unfolding here. The rocks know more than you even though you've spent your life buried in the scriptures and you could recite it nearly from front to back. The rocks know who I am. And you don't have a clue. Who is this Jesus? He's the king of the wind. He's the king of the rain. He has power over storms at sea. He is king over the stars in the sky, the birds in the air, the lilies in the field, the rocks on the ground. Who is this Jesus? He reigns over your past. He's the Lord of your personality. He's the king over your Enneagram number. He's king over the pain you carry in your heart. Every bit of it. He's the king over the worry that burdens you and bombards your mind. Who is this Jesus? This question is not the kind someone can answer for you. We can't glance over at someone else's paper to steal their answer to the question, Who is this Jesus? Not that kind of question. It's an essay question, not a multiple choice. This question emanates out of your personal life and experience and story, and only you can answer this question in an essay format Who is this Jesus? This question does not primarily aim at the head where you give facts about him. Rather, it aims at our inner terrain where radiance waits to be born, where character is shaped where the mustard seed of the gospel of the kingdom takes root and grows and expands and transforms. And one day one looks and says, how did that little thing become this big, magnificent thing? And it is so good for us to pause at the start of this most sacred week and certainly remember Jesus as king, but then ask ourselves more intimately, who is this Jesus? And maybe more specifically, we ask ourselves, if what new territory within me does he want to reign over? I mean, it makes sense. If Jesus is king, then our job is to surrender. I mean, that's what happens. Now, the Jewish people surrendered to the Romans. This isn't that kind of surrender. Jesus is king leading us to be what we were originally created to be. So our surrender is a giving up of those things that pretend to be what we were created to be. Our surrender is to abandon the old and take on the new. And a radiant life such as we have been talking about begins and continues with surrender. Waving the white flag, over some terrain in our lives that we're continuing to hold on to, such as a narrative in our mind, a thought that berates us, a feeling that rises up and we just unthinkingly rush into it, a thought or or a uh, white flag over some aspect of our physical body, that we've never surrendered and said, God, you created me in your image and I receive my own body as coming from you. The white flag over an attitude we have towards certain groups of people. This is a big one, a white flag over our past and things that happened so long ago that continue to reverberate in the present. A white flag over some piece of pain, over a failure, over guilt, over shame, over whatever. I want to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Obviously, this is the kind of thing we can we can peter up on it all we want, that is, talk about it, say nice things about it. But really, this is something that I think insists on a bit more. I'd like to just to close your eyes, you can do whatever you want during this time, but I'd like to just ask you to see this as a opportunity for us to be aligned along that road and to be on that Palm Sunday at the beginning of this holy week and to recognize our King is passing by. We don't know everything about him. That's not the goal. We don't have it all penciled out. That's not the goal. Our file on him is incomplete. That's okay. It always will be. But if he is our king, then his invitation to us is to surrender. I'm going to ask you to take a little bit of maybe a risk for you, but this is time for you and for me to be in the presence of our King. And maybe this is a time where this physical distancing business serves us well because there's room and maybe it feels a little less public. I kind of want this to be private. But what I'd like to ask you to do, as we've been talking throughout this series about a radiant life, we've been talking about the way in which we are a whole person, Thoughts, feelings, bodies, relationships, wills. So I'd like to ask you to recognize the significance of the posture of your body in the journey to surrender. And again, you can do this or not, but I would invite you to either open your hands, maybe raise your hands... possible. You might want to kneel, however you want to do it. And let's just be in this space for a moment of surrender. What inner territory is Jesus saying, can I reign over that? Would you wave the white flag and let me be king there? Let's just sit in this space for a moment.
0: Grace broken.
1: space for a moment. Disturb me, Lord, when I am too well pleased with myself. When my dreams have come true because I've dreamed too little. When I arrive safely because I sailed too close to the shore. Disturb me, Lord, when the abundance of things I possess When with the abundance of things I possess, I have lost my thirst for the waters of life. Have fallen in love with life. I have ceased to dream of eternity. And in my efforts to build a new earth, I have allowed my vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb me, Lord, to dare more boldly. To venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of land. I shall find the stars. I ask you to push back the horizons of my hopes. And to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you today as a gentle, truth-filled, Marvelous, majestic, regal king over everything. And we come to you in this moment and bring to you our adoration for being our king. For being our king willing to ride into this city knowing exactly what you were facing. That we might have worked into our being the radiance of Jesus, who faced difficulty with such grace, with such courage and with such singular abandonment to your goodwill. And in this room today and online today, people have had things surface in their hearts over which you don't really, in any authentic way, reign. And we pray that you will bring about your lordship over these territories within us, that we might know the shalom and the joy that you bring when we surrender to you and allow you to be in charge. So we thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name.